Um, good afternoon, everyone, and a warm welcome uh, to this seminar on Norwegian intelligence in Afghanistan. Um, my name is uh, Torin Wimpelmann. Uh, I'm a research director at Christian Mikkelsen's Institute in Bergen. Uh, and Christian Mikkelsen's Institute is one of the co-organizers of the Afghanistan Week. Um, the Afghanistan Week brings together politicians, uh, journalists, academics and activists from Afghanistan, Norway and beyond to address key issues and to stimulate debate and understanding about Afghanistan. And the first event took place in 2014 and it's now a biannual event. And the Afghanistan Week is hosted by Christian Mikkelsen's Institute, as well as the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee, the, um, the Peace Research Institute of Norway, and the Nansen Center for Peace and Dialogue. And this has been um, made possible by uh, funding from Fritur, from NORAD, and from the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. So please um, uh, welcome Laila, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Torjun, and welcome to everyone to this uh, session, uh, evening session, afternoon session, isn't it? Um, I I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, firstly, because Afghanistan Week has been close to my heart for many years, since the beginning, actually, and many in the room I'm very happy to see here. But also for this session, which I think is quite unique in itself, um, having a session on Norwegian intelligence um, in an open room, in an open setting like this. Three fantastic experts, three fantastic people, um, who I always enjoy meeting and speaking with. Um, and here we are. Um, we have about an hour, which is a challenge in itself, but uh, we'll get right to it. Um, um, the session is entitled Norwegian Intelligence in Afghanistan. How much did we know? Did they know? Um, we have one hour. We'll get introductions by all, uh, followed by a short discussion um, here in the panel after which I'll open up for questions from the audience. So please note down your questions, uh, any queries or comments, comments that you might have as we go along, as we will make sure that there's space for that in the end. Um, now, what gave us the opportunity to have this session is of course the great book, which I just finished a couple of hours ago, actually, um, uh, reading um, as fast as I could to make sure that I could, I could uh, sit on the panel a bit more qualified than before. Um, it's a fantastic book. It gives us an insight into Norwegian intelligence service. Um, it gives us an in insight into how the service works, who they are, the intelligence officers, um, how they cooperate, and We'll, we meet two gentlemen, Fridolik uh, Listofferson and uh, Kjetil Hattrebekke. Kjetil Hattrebekke, unfortunately, is not here with us, unless he's with us from New York. Uh, is this streamed, by the way? Yes, so he might be there with us from New York, who knows. Um, two gentlemen who worked in the, international, uh, in the uh, intelligence service, but who also have a long career uh, within the military uh, service. Um, um, they've written this book um, from a very personal point of view as well, I think, and a very professional view. So it's a great dialogue, if you like, between the two of them in the field. Um, and with us in the panel today, we have practical experience from the field. We have 
an international law, international human rights law, humanitarian law expert. And we have uh, someone who's worked on Afghanistan for a number of decades. Um, we'll all be hearing from, from all of them. But first of all, um, give us a gist of the book, um, and I'll introduce you as well as a Norwegian Brigadier General who has spent most of his career, uh, career in the Special Forces and Intelligence uh, Service. Fruda has, as we will understand very shortly, extensive experience from operations in Afghanistan and is co-author of this book on intelligence, together with uh, Dr. Kjetil Hatlebrekia. I should mention that the book uh, goes through a number of field operations, a number of uh, scenarios of places where the two gentlemen have worked, um, among others the Balkans, Afghanistan and Iraq. The focus of this seminar is, or this session, is of course Afghanistan. Hmm. Thank, uh, thank you, Laila. So, um, uh, the book called Intelligence, it's, um, it's focusing quite a lot on, it has several chapters on Afghanistan. And uh, so it's based on, uh, on my experience, both from the Special Forces and, and the um, Intelligence Service. And um, there are some, um, so we, are, we, are, we kind of reflect on the successes that uh, the cooperation between the Special Forces and the Intelligence Service, what they gained. But of, of course, also we have some criticism uh, on uh, what we could have done uh, during the, the period from 2001 until, until last year. And um, so the, the most, uh, the, the success kind of um, in um, cooperation, integration between special forces and, and the Norwegian intelligence service, which had a, had a, it was a journey where the intelligence service had to, had to support uh, tactical small unit operations uh, that had um, strategic effect for Norway. And, uh, and that was uh, something quite different from what the intelligence service had focused on uh, during the Cold War, which, which was uh, large uh, collection systems uh, directed on uh, towards Russia, um, so that that's uh, something that we we learned quite fast, and our um, uh, well, it it changed the whole uh, dynamics of the intelligence service. It changed the intelligence service itself with with the, all the all the different uh, partners, all the very fast uh, operations. Um, so that's kind of the, some of the success story that, we, that, that we're trying to, um, uh, to talk about in the, in the book. Um, so on the, on the crit criticism, it's, um, um, so of course this is in hindsight, but uh, still it, I think we have um, mainly three, three main points, uh, I would say. So uh, first of all, it's um, kind of the tendency that we always the tendency of the, of the whole operation, of the whole international effort to slide away from the objective which was um, stated, especially when NATO took over and the ISAF operation was, was stated uh, that the um, uh, objective was to, to get uh, Afghan forces should take care of the, of the security situation in, in Afghanistan. Um, I think all the, all the resources we had available, that NATO had available in Afghanistan was, could, could I, yeah, I think it was detrimental to, to the main objective in some way. Because it was so, we had the NATO focusing with all the intel assets, all the drones, all the analyst uh, capacity. Um, 
it, it was a highway of, of intelligence. Um, and that was a very easy choice instead of focusing on, on the Afghan building the Afghan system. So it was parallel structures that we built up um, operating as a NATO force with uh, Afghans uh, on the side to a lack of integration. So that, that's, uh, that's one point. Um, and, the, and the Afghan, um, part of that is that the Afghan situation awareness was um, more built on, on of course, uh, people. So that it, it was a different uh, situation awareness between NATO and, and, uh, and, the, and the Afghan security forces that we were supposed to be integrated with. Um, so, uh, so the second one is, um, is uh, a lack of continuity on, on um, even though, uh, in the operation, in the campaign. Even though, uh, so I was there in for several times from 2002 and 3 and 5 and 7, 8, 9 and 12. Uh, there was a, a, saw a lack of continuity on, on the NATO side and coalition side. Um, new commanders came in and had set their goals for the 6-12 months they were there and were very eager to achieve those goals. So they, it was, uh, it, they were, um, they had, um, they were very eager to reach those goals in the short term. Uh, so that happened every year, kind of. So we were eager to reach uh, reach goals, but it, uh, lack of continuity wasn't uh, there. Was no continuity, uh, well, a lack of continuity as a whole. Um, and um, and I could see that from from some of the operations as well on the on the intelligence side that was, we had written a report on an area and kind of informed the ISAF coalition on what what the situation in one certain area was. Um, that was often quite the same when we, when we arrived uh, one year later, even though we knew that the situation changed, changed quite fast in, in Afghanistan. Um, so my third and, and last point that's criticism uh, in, in the book is, is that's also a point that's uh, mentioned in, in the Afghanistan report uh, that uh, Norway uh, issued in 2016, who, who, who looked at the efforts in, in Afghanistan from, from 2001 to 2014. And it's, um, it's a lack of strategy. So even though um, it, the report is called a good ally, and it, it's a very, very good uh, headline for, because it's, it, it, it reports, report points at uh, Norway being a good ally for the for its main ally, the U.S. was the main goal in the in the operation. And um, after that, it was to make sure that uh, uh, Afghanistan was not a place for uh, for terrorist groups. And the third one was to to support the state building. So uh, and that that's um, that's uh, so being a good ally is is uh, of course uh, an important point, but uh, the the report also points to the lack of strategic uh, uh, control of, of the operation or strategic overview. So um, 
So that's also something that we we seen that we 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 are doing. We did the operations based on uh, on um, uh, short time frame the the uh, forces we had available and filled gaps in in the campaign without um, uh, well a lack of national strategy on on what we wanted to achieve. Great. Um, three lessons learned, and as you said, it's is easy to be. Um, to, to in hindsight to to uh, get, get you know to to word those uh, those uh, criticisms um we'll get back to some of this um Cecile Hellestweit, uh, you've been working on international law, you've been working on Afghanistan, a number of conflict zones around the world. Um, Cecile Hellestweit, Dr. Cecile Hellestweit is a researcher um, at the Norwegian Academy of International Law, a uh, lawyer and a social scientist um, with a PhD in international humanitarian law. Um, what is your immediate uh, reaction to lessons in hindsight um, and some of the, the criticism that has 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 um, been worded towards the operations um, in Afghanistan over the years. Now, <clears throat> I will primarily now speak as an international lawyer and then come back to more general uh, observations later. Now, because uh, I think it's it's important to know we now have various lessons learned reports. We also have the US lesson learned report that came out last year from the general inspector for the, for, for the reconstruction of Afghanistan. We have hearings before the Congress and so forth. And in various NATO countries, you've had lessons learned reports. So if we draw on those, I think that um, it was not a unique Norwegian experience for the intelligence service to go through a, a pretty harsh learning process in Afghanistan. Most, most countries did that. And the US as well has said that you know what they faced after 2001 in terms of how their intelligence services work was also kind of a, a revolution in a way uh, and uh, in hindsight we might say that Afghanistan to some extent has been the the, the, the laboratory for some of the of that work and and as you know when we deal with military affairs being the laboratory is not a very favorable position to be in so I think that a number of mistakes were made uh, at, at numerous levels. Now, I think it is important to, to, to be aware that when we talk about the military and operations in foreign countries, the military is obliged under international law to engage in intelligence. In order to be able to engage an enemy, a military target, you need to have intelligence about what constitutes a military target, who is a military target, what are the civilians and the civilian infrastructure around? Because you need to make those evaluations prior to and when you engage an enemy. So this is also a part of intelligence gathering that is we, we, we sometimes tend to, to, to forget. That is the, the, the primary aim of intelligence, to know the enemy so that you can kind of direct uh, attacks against the correct uh, target and to limit civilian casualties. Now, uh, I think in Afghanistan, these three 
periods of first the, the, the US-led operation against al-Qaeda and the Taliban operation enduring freedom was a US-led, not a NATO operation, but a US-led operation where the US had kind of a lot of the power and they decided what was going to be done. So most of the countries participating were kind of at the mercy of the US. And that was also reflected in how, how the operations were, were led. And when we move into the ISAF period, this was a period of of cooperation among a lot of nations. And it is true that the objectives were kind of not very clear always, but they were also very different for the different countries. And after some time, you got a setup where the different countries were contributing information into a pool of intelligence. And that was the kind of the joint intelligence sharing pool of information. And if you, if you look at each country's responsibility for how that information is used, that is a very complex thing. So eventually, you gather intelligence for common use in a way. And the responsibility part for each military is how you use that information. So it's when you actually employ it for your military operations, that is when your responsibility come in. And as we know, uh, there were different differences, quite stark differences actually, concerning what was lawful operations and what was gray zones and what was more or less unlawful military operations in, in Afghanistan, such as the JPEL lists, the target and or yeah, target and killing lists that uh, the, the Americans perceived to be lawful under international law. They thought that this was, this was okay. And European countries, uh, most vocally the Germans, but also some of the other Norwegian countries, including Norway, perceived this to be, if not a gray area, but also unlawful. And made sure that... Uh, the, the, the soldiers of our countries did not participate in that type of operations. And there were meetings at a, at, at a weekly basis between some of these countries and the, the coalition partners to make sure that we didn't participate in that type of operations. But again, it goes back to the complexity of the setup uh, because the different countries also have different ideas about what is actually lawful in terms of what you can do with your special forces or your, your military uh, actors. And then it's the third period after 2014 when, when ISAF is br brought to an end and the militaries are in a, an assistant role. And that, that is when it becomes kind of complex from, from uh, a perspective of responsibility. Because then <clears throat> the Norwegian forces, for instance, they assist the Afghan forces in operations that primarily the Afghan government is responsible for. And what happens when you then have an, 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 a situation where you know that there are things that are being committed that are in violation of IHL? What is your duty as a military uh, actor and what is your duty in terms of handing over information to your partner that you know that that partner will then use to commit what you perceive to be uh, torture or violations of international law. So this last period from 2014 until now is, is, is less clear uh, and more complex in terms of responsibility. So three different phases. Um more and more complex as we see it, uh, the scenario more and more and more and more and more complicated. Um, 
we'll get back to some of this as well. We have three lessons or three criticisms and then three three phases. Uh, Christian Beck Hypfikian, um, we all know Christian Beck Hypfikian, who's been you know w with Afghanistan for a number of decades, worked on Afghanistan, a scholar on Afghanistan. You've seen it from the inside, you've seen it from the outside. Um, um, what are your reactions to what's being said here? Uh, nothing new, I assume, but but what can we draw from this? Well, I learned a lot from from reading the book, and I think if perhaps the most significant is the fact that this book actually opens the door to us sitting here on the same stage and discussing this openly. And of course, we all realize that there are things that one cannot discuss openly, but I nonetheless see this as a bit of a watershed. And I've been very aware throughout Norway's presence in Afghanistan that it's a privilege to be able to discuss this in public and that there are a lot of people who don't have that privilege. Uh, so, you know, we have public intellectuals and we have all the secret intellectuals, but now we have the secret intellectuals actually engaging in a discussion on the same stage, and I think that's important. And reading the book, you know, it's interesting also to see, in many ways, to me, this reads like a book in research methodology. And, you know, you and Seattle, you're actually making that point, you're saying, and I quote, a good intelligence officer would think in the same way as a good researcher. So there are many commonalities, and I actually would think that whereas intelligence officers clearly read social science methodology, I'm not convinced that most researchers read intelligence methodology. So I think we, we may have something to learn, learn from that. Um, then three reflections, and one is backward-looking, one is looking at what happened last fall, and the other one is looking at the present. And the first thing I want to reflect on, looking back, is one particular issue, and I don't think you touched upon this, Cecilia. I claim not to be an expert on international law whatsoever, but one of the things that I have been puzzled by, both reading your book, and uh, other accounts of uh, Norway's uh, military operations, special operations, intelligence operations in Afghanistan, and there have been some of them. There's been little on the intelligence part, but nonetheless glimpses now and then, is how critical many uh, of those who have served in the Norwegian military forces have been of the intelligence provided by allies. So the current chief of defense, who also happens to be Frode's brother, that's not a point here, Frode represents himself and his own position, but he writes clearly in the book that came out in the fall uh, some three years back that we could not trust the intelligence that we received from our allies. We had to scrutinize it. We were not willing to go on an operation and employ the, for the, the, the means of violence against anybody without having done our own scrutiny of the targeting information that we received. Now, I'm curious on many levels, of course, how do our allies, how do our allies re relate to that? What do they think <laughs> when leading, leading people within the Norwegian armed forces say that? It's a, it's, it's a fairly serious observation to come with. Uh, so, so I get curious, how does that affect relationships between allies and how does it re affect later exchange of information? 
Now, this is something that apparently has been there throughout much of Norwegian presence in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. Then fast forward, and this is my second reflection, related to um, the fall of the government of the Afghan Republic in August last year. And of course, uh, if you follow just the public discourse and not the least the political discourse, the impression that you would get from the political discourse, including leading media, is that this was absolutely unexpected. You'd have leading politicians of the world saying virtually a day before the fall of the government that the Afghan government is robust, it has a strong military force, and it is going to withstand the Taliban's military pressure. And I'm not sure you say it directly in the book, but I'm clearly left with the impression that those were not the reports that our intelligence services produced. And I'm not asking you to uh, necessarily comment on that gap in perceptions between the intelligence and the, and the public messaging of leading politicians, but there clearly is a problem and a paradox in that. Uh, and I don't think this is unique to Norway, by the way. I do I do have the clear impression that not only did it not come as a surprise, that there had been quite consistent reporting, not only over a few months, but in fact over several years, that pointed towards what happened on the 15th of August 2021. And I think that also plays to what was one of your main takeaways in your introduction, namely that, namely that there is an inability to deploy intelligence at the strategic level, at the really over, overarching strategic level in terms of what are the overall political objectives and the ways that things are, the, the way that things are heading. And then my final comment, which is also perhaps as much a question as a comment, has to do with what happened to intelligence resources after the fall of the government. And I'm not expecting you to know all there is to know about that. After all, Norway isn't there anymore. Uh, but there are quite uh, concerning reports about the Taliban having taken over uh, the archives of the Afghan intelligence services, using that effectively to either threaten or target people who have served as informants or who have worked for the intelligence services in uh, in other functions. And I think that raises some questions also in the domain of uh, capacity building, because clearly there was a lot of resources invested in capacity building with the Afghan security forces, just like there has been in capacity with uh, Ukrainian intelligence over the past several years. But there is also another side of the coin, and that is the question of what happened to the actual resources. And I mentioned that some of them are targeted. I think that goes always without saying, and it's no surprise. But what I'm pondering about, and here I don't really have any hard evidence, but I'm still pondering about the extent to which key resources within the intelligence services must have been attractive resources to the Taliban. And from what we know about earlier regi regime transitions, 
the level of continuity that we have often seen when it comes to the intelligence services and the attractive competencies that they possess makes me raise that as a question. But really, that is a question. When it comes to the information, I do think we already have quite solid documentation that that information is being utilized for, for the worse. Which, of course, if you are to think about it, would raise, are there other measures we could take in the context of capacity building of intelligence services to try to prevent that sort of misuse if and when there is a regime change? I'll limit myself to that at the outset, but I hope we can get back to some of these issues. Thank you, Christian, and we will get back to some of that. I hope we will we'll have time to get back to all of them. Um, let's... Um, uh, reverse a bit and start off with Frodegian. Why this book and who is the audience? It might seem obvious, but just explain what was the intention behind the book? Yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, my co-author, co uh, Kjetili, has written, um, it's, it's, it's a very, it's called uh, The Problem of Secret Intelligence, very heavy uh, PhD behind it. Uh, and, um, and we thought that, um, okay, when we had the idea of writing a book, this would be something else. Mm -hmm. so, um, so our main point is kind of um, the Norwegian people in general knows too little about um, intelligence and, and the function it has in an open democracy. So, so it's, uh, that was our main motivation for, for writing it. Mm -hmm. And one of the, um, it's been mentioned here before today that Afghanistan in a way has been a labor laboratory. Um, uh, a horrible word, but in a horrible context. But still, it's 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 it gave the Norwegian military an opportunity to train, to learn, and to train from Afghanistan. It gave the intelligence services also an an opportunity to 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 use many of its methods. Um, how uh, it, and, and we were there for many many years. How did this evolve? How did the techniques, the methods, um, without going into detail, but as much as you can tell, and you, you've in the book, it's quite clear. You know, there was a development, um, and there was, a, in a way, it was a laboratory, um, Afghanistan, in the way you used, in the way um, the methods, the way you worked with allies, the way you worked with partners. Could you explain a bit? Yeah. So. And part of your question is, is kind of uh, answering uh, your question, Christian. It's, uh, it's um, so um, after uh, after the last year, everything uh, when Taliban took over very fast. It's uh, it was uh, kind of a quite shocking day after all everything that we had tried to achieve for so long. Um, and um, but still, I'm I'm quite I'm very proud about what we achieved during the operations in Afghanistan. And part of it is, is that we really took responsibility for our, our, our own part in the in the operation. And um, we um, used the intelligence service, the, the team that were with us, with the special forces, to really take responsibility of our own operations and our own actions. And um, and looking at the effects of, of what we could achieve. And um, I think to a quite large degree, we were uh, successful in integrating with, uh, with, uh, with the Afghan uh, special police unit that we were training with. And we did that, um, and we achieved that through, through continuity and, and a focus on, on um, getting them to take uh, responsibility, to train them to, uh, to 
make them uh, have the have the um, capacity to take the responsibility. And we see we saw that through, through several from 2012 to 2020, there were we were successful together with our Afghan uh, police partners to defeat uh, all the terrorist attacks on Kabul. So, um, so I think um, for the for the intel service to uh, to kind of make us be responsible for the for what we saw as our part of the campaign and our operation was uh, was the main thing. Um, um, one of the things which I'd like to dig into is cooperation with allies, and Christian mentioned this as as one of one of the difficult areas, um, and it's been brought up a lot in in the media, etc. As well, you know, what, how do we? Who uses the information? Cecilia said that, mentioned that as well. Um, how do you gather information? How do you process the information, etc.? And the different methods that the different allies had. And at some point, um, it developed a big rift between the Europeans and the Americans. And the rifts within the rifts as well. Uh, we know there's um, different ways of working. Um, Cecilia, do you want to comment a bit more or do you want to... Uh, I would just that? like to say a couple of words uh, going back to your question as well and I think it might be relevant for the discussion because inter uh, intelligence is not something that is regulated under international law. This is something that every country is kind of allowed to do. You know, intelligence services are allowed to break the law in foreign countries and there is a gentleman's agreement that that is kind of allowed. If you take them, you can punish them. You can actually hang them for being spies, but it's not really a violation of international law. But we don't have international treaties regulating intelligence uh, sharing information. You might have certain countries that are not allies, but very close allies that have these agreements. But it's, it's like you can, you can move up and down the chain and it's very common to use that as leverage to say that uh, an ally or a coalition partner would get access to more to higher echelons of intelligence sharing or you will move down. So this is one of the, the ways in which countries pressure each other to follow the policies that the strongest guy in the room or the strongest state in the room is actually um, you know, pursuing. And, and in, in huge coalitions such as the one in Afghanistan, you have the, the, the intelligence sharing of all the ISAF countries. But then, of course, you have little groups of, of other countries. And this is a, a very, not very out in the open leverage, but it's commonly used to kind of to, to, to punish or to... to um, there, there, yeah. There's a great... I mean, there's another side to this. There's a great example in the book <coughs> mentioned by Hietil on how it's extremely important for intelligence officers to have more to bring to the table, um, to always have something to bring to the table so we can share information on this. Um, and the methods then become extremely important in getting the most unique information, understanding the landscape better than your opponent so that you have something to, to bring to the table. There's a trade involved in this, always. Uh, but, but how do you, um, how do you ensure that the same rules of the game are played? Um, same or rules is there, for the is there a no, Yeah, so um, so so it's uh, it's quite com complex. We had uh, Cecilia's point on everyone contributing to a common uh, Intel uh, foundation, kind of, and um, and I heard there's a I heard there's a Pashtun uh, saying that when there are uh, lots of uh, but lots of uh, butchers there. 
cold will suffer. So, so it's uh, it, it was uh, kind of uh, kind of challenging being all those actors in uh, in um, in um, in Afghanistan, of course. But um, uh, so the um, Norwegian intelligence um, concept was to have uh, have uh, intelligence officers from the uh, from the intel service, from the strategic service, being uh, representatives. Uh, supporting us on the ground, so they could use the bilateral agreements on on sharing uh, sharing agreements through, uh, through uh, different partners. So it meant it meant um, access to to more data, but they had to do the the analysts uh, analyst job them, themselves. Um, so uh, so that that worked uh, uh, quite well, and uh, and but the main main thing um, is that you always responsible for your own operations. So you should be sure about the intel, um, the intel that's, that the operation is based on. So you should, uh, should always uh, focus on that. And, and I think that's, so the idea of having a common intelligence foundation, each operation you had to kind of um, make sure that the, the intelligence was right, even though uh, you had uh, access to it. There's more. There's a lot of interesting points in that uh, about this uh, uh, in the book, and I hope you get a chance to read it. Um, let's move to a point of. You make a very strong point in the book of um, um, openness. That that the openness in intelligence is a strength. You say. Um, and that to many uh, observers of of uh, the intelligence service just seems very. Um, it doesn't just. It doesn't quite fit in, because the the um, you know the the trademark of the intelligence service is secrecy. Yeah. How do you what do you mean by openness? So why is the openness so, uh, important? Yeah, so um, different uh, different points on that. And uh, so we, in in general, an open society is more secure than a closed one. So uh, for um, so that's that's one point. So it's uh, it's an it's important for the. Norwegian intelligence service to to say as much as they can. Of course, uh, always uh, shielding the um, um, the sources and, and methods that has to be shielded. Um, but on the on the coalition operation, of course, it's uh, to achieve the um, the effects from uh, from um, many partner nations working together or allies. You had to be as open as possible. Um, uh, so, and uh, to my point on on um, on having not in integrating the the Afghans enough Afghan security forces, and we we often discussed uh, how could we share information between allies mm. better. And I always made the point that okay, but that's not the problem. It's the sharing with the Afghan security forces that. That that's that was the main problem, uh, and we often uh, didn't do enough of that. Now I think the the British intelligence chief said that more in his speech last year that in order to stay secret we need to become more open. So in order to kind of shield some of the activities of the intelligence service, you need to become more open in order to gather also legitimacy. But I think 
in the world today, there are very many competing narratives, and a lot of it is propaganda, it is politically, you know, uh, biased and so forth. And, and intelligence analysis is, the objective is partly to, to take away all of that and to have a very uh, sober analysis of the situation. And I think most of the Western countries today, they have yearly public analysis by the intelligence service in order to provide the public with a more sober analysis so that they can look at why the, the, the political authorities are actually doing what they're doing outside of, 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 of the borders. And that, of course, has a, a let's say, a, a democratic function and also a function of, of cooling down sometimes the propaganda. Uh, but I also want to, to, to remind you of how intelligence has been used in the lead up to the war in, in Ukraine, lead up to the invasion and during the invasion and during the war, the Americans particularly and the French and the British, they have been very good at, at declassifying information, intelligence very quickly and using that as a way of preventing the Russians from doing things that they had planned. Because when this is out in the open, they cannot do it anymore. So it's kind of this, so intelligence I think is, is currently changing a little bit of its tactical value in terms of, of military operations. And, and I think that will be the next stage and that will bring us into some new problems, I believe, yeah. Tristan, um, <laughs> you wanted to make Well, a point. I just want to comment on that because I entirely agree. And I also think then that we see the potential damage being done by open intelligence entering the public debate, which proves not to be truthful. And there, of course, the Iraqi invasion is the prime reference where where information, intelligence information was clearly manipulated, politicized and presented in the public domain not being based. And this is not, this is not a criticism of the intelligence service primarily, it's a criticism of the responsible politicians who use the information in that way. But I think in fact we still suffer the consequences of that. And I think many, including myself, when seeing some of the information in the lead up to the Ukrainian war, instinctively have that at the back of our mind, that we've, we've seen this before. So I'm not talking about the use of tactical information that, that Cecilia was emphasizing. I'm talking more about the larger strategic use in order to try to foster public understanding for a potential development. And this is not a counter-argument at all, it's more of a reflection, but the damage that can be done by the politicization of intelligence that we saw then in 2003 is still with us almost 20 years yeah, later. Yeah. Um, um, I, I'm very conscious of time here and there's so many different issues that we want to get through. I also want to give the public, um, uh, public, the audience, um, uh, audience an opportunity in the name of openness. <laughs> um, uh, but, but let's talk about, let's end up in a way with the elephant in the room, if you like, <laughs> which is uh, a point that uh, Christian made. Um, how surprisingly to many it seemed the Taliban takeover of uh, of Kabul, 15th of August, 2021, um, uh, seemingly, I say. Um, and, and in intelligent discourse, there's a term called um, um, discourse failure or, or intelligence failure. Are we talking about intelligence failure here, Fruda? So it was unexpected, uh, the fast fall of Kabul. Um, but not as fast as it so happened. we uh, yeah we discussed this, this uh, intelligence failure um, 
kind of ended up uh, that uh, over the scenario we had was that um, there was no we were certain that uh, Taliban would take over um, after after the withdrawal um, and um, uh, but we didn't uh, our scenario didn't uh, I know, we didn't expect it to happen so fast so we we expect more uh, civil war. Um, especially in, in uh, and around Kabul, and uh, and maybe a, a takeover after a couple of months, maybe a half a year. So that was uh, that was the scenario we had. So um, uh, of course we may have may have looked um, looked more into different scenarios, like if uh, Ghani left the country, what effects would that have? Um, we had, uh, we had kind of lost from my perspective. We have, uh, we have uh, trained the uh, Afghan security forces to be in a political control. And if, if the president left the country, and mm -hmm. and uh, so a, a close friend of mine, an uh, Afghan officer, he, he said, said that they were uh, told to put their weapons down. Uh, so they were kind of his his version is that they were politically defeated, uh, not militarily. So. So we we didn't uh, I didn't uh, see see the the fall of Kabul happen that fast, but uh, but uh, of course um, the the outlook for a for a civil war in at least I mean, in and around Kabul would have kind of been worse. Mm. What lessons can we draw from this, Sir Christian? <laughs> from your point of view? Well, I. I think we can draw a number of lessons for it from it and clearly the information was there and why that was not the image that was given through um, through tr statements by leading politicians uh, we can you know we can ponder about uh, probably a number of reasons for that a little bit of wishful thinking uh, also, a concern that by stating the obvious, you would contributing to uh, the least desirable outcome. So you know, not all of those motives are <laughs> dishonorable by no means, uh, but it still, of course, uh, creates a, 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 a disconnect. And uh, I'm sure the uh, the good thing about having this discussion is that uh, there has been a lot of intelligence services blaming for for that communication. And I think at least also here now in the room and on the stream, we know that that was, uh, was not the case. Then, of course, if you think about Afghan history, I would say that it shouldn't be so surprising that once things started to unravel, they unraveled fast. That's exactly what happened in 1992 when uh, the so-called communist government fell. You know, there were a couple of misplaced attempts by the then president Najibullah to um, to replace some leading generals by with others and it created it ignited local protests and within days you had a regime change similar things happened in 1996 2001 was different because that was an international intervention with even with boots on the ground and certainly with not so many boots on the ground but certainly with the power in the air, uh, but, but looking at the history, um, this cascading effects, once things start to, start to change, is not so surprising. And 
Yes, I'm sure a lot of people uh, in the armed forces were instructed to lay their arms down, but, but that's part of the cascade. History repeats itself. Uh, I want to ask you, Cecilia, the same question, but I also want to open up to the audience. We have about uh, seven minutes left, so um, anyone. But Cecilia, quickly, now, and then I note very down. Quickly, I just want to say one thing because I was, uh, you know, uh, talking about all these constructive roles and functions of intelligence. I do want to remind everyone that intelligence services also engage in what we call active measures. Uh, they do put out uh, false information, not to their own public, but to uh, the public of other countries that they want to influence. That is also a part of the picture, just to, you know, to, to, to make sure that we get that. I think in terms of what happened when the Taliban took over, there are three things that, that I think that perhaps the analysis of the intelligence services missed. And, and it, those are kind of strategic, very strategic uh, elements. And it is, firstly, this is the modus operandi of those types of insurgent um, uh, groups these days. ISIS did the same thing in Iraq in 2014 when they captured huge areas of Iraq in, in, in a matter of days. It was exactly the same modus operandi. You have, you have already made deals with the local sh chiefs and you have put them, you know, you can choose this one or you can choose this way and, 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 and you move in and, and they basically give up their arms. And the same thing, exactly the same happened with the Houthis in Yemen in 2015 in January. So this is the way they do it when you prepare it for some time and you come and you take over. And that was the first. And the second is, of course, that, that the Taliban had quite a lot of time preparing for this. And the third, third is that who was going to take over when the, the, the Western countries left? There was nobody there. So what are the stakes? What are the odds if you put up a fight? Who will come to your rescue? And at the time, you know, when, when there is no apparent actor there. But these are very strategic kind of perspectives. And then, of course, how does this operate its way down to the more... Now, it's part, know, part of the answer, the of course, that the Taliban was surprised themselves at how quickly it went. So that's part of it as well. Uh, Petter Burke, I saw, and then there's someone at the back right there. Petter. You could also mention Sarjouja, 1842, when the Brits had to leave. It is also a quick uh, change. But, two, I mean, one question is, we heard earlier today about this network society. And I just wonder what kind of in hindsight uh, evaluation have the uh, intelligence done to see, hey, did we have the right understanding of this country where we were going to do an intelligence work with such serious consequences? And the other thing is we have two levels of intelligence on the military side in Norway. To my understanding, at least we had, because I came upon uh, this conflict uh, in 212 or something, uh, you have the military intelligence, but then you have the intelligent battalion in the army. And they do not necessarily have the same information as the people in the intelligence battalion said, we are on the ground. So we know da 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 all these details, while the military intelligence, they are more on the yeah, higher level. Could you say something about how is that cooperation? Because I came across a situation where actually the information were quite contradictory between the two. Yeah. So uh, Norway is Norway's, uh, special position. On, uh, we have only one, one intelligence service that's uh, foreign, uh, focusing on foreign intelligence, which, uh, and it's the Norwegian Intelligence Service. So, um, but the service is in the military. 
and yeah, so Norwegian intelligence service is both military and uh, and civilian uh, foreign intelligence. But um, um, the services, so like, like the army and uh, and uh, navy, uh, etc., they have uh, um, their uh, intelligence functions for military operations. Uh, so they can uh, they, they, they are used in the military operations abroad, but they don't, are not used. They don't have the mandate to conduct uh, um, foreign intelligence on a daily basis. So that's the that's kind of the, the difference. So um, and um, the idea is that uh, of course the integration is uh, of this is, should always be uh, one int. Won't recognize into the picture. That's all, that's always uh, always the, what we're looking for. Um, right at the back, the gentleman at the back, and then I'll give you the word afterwards, please. No, I think Ukraine saved you well. Uh, I mean, all the rest and the fiasco in Kabul. And I'm really shocked by your conclusion that you're saying that you expected a civil war, and. Uh, I think it's not your conclusion, it's all the intelligence agencies which were in Kabul. That's the conclusion. I just wonder, does the Afghan civilians uh, have had any values for the for the West in there that you had such a conclusion there and you didn't do anything to, to save the Afghanistan? Does they have any, any value, the, those people? So, um, uh, of course they had. Um, so uh, Norway's uh, position was to to um, go in with our close ally, the U.S., and also uh, stay there until uh, until the left. Um, it's it's important to to know that uh, Norwegian military contribution to or spending at least in uh, in was a quarter of percent of the total international contribution. So there was no way Norway could have their own uh, its own operation going after the peace processes and the retrograde, um, and um, uh, but uh, that was the scenario I saw. Was um, I, I expected um, uh, the Afghan forces in Kabul to fight against the Kabul uh, Taliban, and that was would mean a civil war in 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 that area at least. Um, but um, you can be very sure that uh, all the Afghans I met, they still uh, still mean a lot to me. If, if I may add, just very briefly, I recommend that you read the speech that uh, President Joe Biden gave on the 16th of August, the day after. Kabul fell to the Taliban. There is absolutely zero compassion for the fate of the Afghans expressed in that speech. There is one small sentence in which he's concerned about those Americans who have Afghan friends who now suffer. But it is his American citizens that are the subject of that compassion, not the Afghans. My name is Farida Ahmadi. I am a social anthropologist and was born in Afghanistan. Oh, it is, first of all, thank you very much to have this hopeness. This is a lot of value to discuss. I am proud to call me as a Norwegian. This because this is very serious. But my question, 
it is hard to accept your analyze. I can't accept because I have another uh, reality from Afghanistan. And uh, French uh, embassy uh, told in interview, it is two months before the uh, Taliban come in power, they have planned that all uh, people who work with French embassy or French military to move. This is the systematic war from all Western country to remove all institution, democracy, destroyed all Afghanistan. This is was systematic from Afghanistan. From but I can't believe you. Another thing, uh, I'm I'm a lot of chagrin. What is chagrin? Sorrow to understand. To understand what I was the first person, first woman in the United States in the in the White House and ask this president who is freedom fighter. My family was in the jail and I am so naive. Young woman try to uh, give advice to president they make before. Now come, come research that I was in the Libraska to talk how fundamentalists uh, wash, bring, wash the, our, our kids. <laughs> but now the CIA paid for Nebraska University to make book in different level. Where is intelligence? I ask you as the name of humanity. Other special, other question is, an Afghan military told me that the Norwegian special force killed by self American. That is true? Um, so the uh, last question was if there was a Norwegian killed by Americans? Norwegian special forces, five, seven, people who died in Afghanistan uh, and... Uh, Killed by Americans? Yeah, the one of, of uh, military people told me, and I have a lot of argument, it is difficult to talk in English, but it is while Afghanistan be a, a jungle of where is the... Uh, what is the name? Yeah, no, they're threatening the, yeah. Norwegian, they're threatening all these people. The intelligence service. So, uh, no, there's no indication that uh, there was uh, um, Americans behind them, uh, the, uh, the mine incident, I guess you, you're talking about. And um, I think uh, on, um, on your point on humanity, it's uh, so. Um, that's a that that's a that's, that's kind of the same question. Nor Norway couldn't have stood there uh, alone with a small force after after the U.S. withdrawal. So that was the main, that that was the Norwegian policy as well to to stay there and, and until uh, our ally left. So we we didn't have the capacity to do other other uh, uh, to do it otherwise either.
Thank you. Um, thank you for all that. Thank you for all the questions. I know there are many more questions in the room. Um, um, I think our three panelists and the author for the discussion will be here for a little while afterwards. So you might be able to to approach him and or them and continue the discussion. Um, I'm also told that I am to remind you that there's a keynote speech by the foreign minister in the um, Red Cross building just across here at uh, six o'clock. Um, and before I give you the word, I just really want to thank all the panelists here, uh, Cecilia Hellestveit, Christian Berg-Hauptwicken, and Frode Christoffersen. And I recommend you really to read this book with an open mind and with gratitude also for the service that's been given to, to, uh, to the country. Uh, thank you so much to all of you. Big hand <laughs>